This morning's reading is from the Gospel of Mark, the second chapter, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. All right, you guys can take a seat. Well, hey, guys, my name is Andrew. I serve here at Providence as uh, one of the pastors. And so I'm excited to be here this morning with you guys. As Jared said, uh, this is just a joy every week. I love getting to be here with you guys. I love singing with you guys, but I think maybe most importantly, I love just getting into God's word with you guys. And so uh, that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to uh, pray to get us started, and then we're going to be in Mark chapter 2 that was just read for us. Let me pray, and we'll get going. Father God, we do thank you um, that you've called us to worship, that you have brought us here Uh, Well, I do pray for all of us in the room that you would give us sharp minds and soft hearts as we approach your word, that it would shape us and mold us, and that, God, you would draw us into worship through your word. So we pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, church, I want you guys to to finish this quote for me, okay? So I'm going to start it. I want you guys to actually shout this out to me, okay? I brought you into this world, and I can take you out. You guys got it. Now... This line, for those of you who don't know, if you uh, don't watch old television shows, or maybe you're just under 25, and I know some of you are offended I called it old, but this line is from the Cosby Show, and this, this show aired from like the 80s to maybe the 90s, and in it, the dad of the show is trying to teach his son at one point that he has a certain level of authority over his son, and so he says this line, I brought you into this world so I can take you out of it. Now, don't take this too literally, okay? We're not, it's hyperbole. We're not advocating for parents getting rid of their children. But you get the point, right? And some of you parents have probably thought this or even maybe said this to your kids when you're trying to communicate that as a parent, you do have a certain level of authority over your children. And this idea of authority, this structure of authority, uh, actually governs most of our relationships in our world. So uh, in, in the family, we have authority. We have parents that have authority over their children. Or if you think about 
in education. There's authority, a certain level. It's different than like a parent, but there's a certain level of authority given to a teacher over their children in their classroom. Or uh, if you look at the workplace, if you're a CEO, there's a certain level of authority that you have over your employees. It's different than a parent, it's different than a teacher, but there is authority. If you're the president of the United States, there's a certain level of authority that we have. Now, not all authority is the same in each of these relationships, but there always is some sort of authority. Now, so far, if you've been here the last couple weeks, in chapter one of the Gospel of Mark, he is trying to communicate to us that Jesus also has authority. Okay, he, He's trying to tell us that Jesus has authority. He shows us Jesus as king, as the king that was promised to come. He shows the stories where Jesus casts out demons and he heals people and people are awed, it says, of his authority. Even in chapter one, he's teaching and the way that people respond is that they, they say that he teaches as one who has authority. Mark is trying to communicate this man, this Jesus has authority. His fame begins to grow. People begin to see tangibly the authority that he has But I think the question that that Mark's kind of going to transition to in our text for this morning is not just that Jesus has authority, but the question's going to be, what's the extent of that authority? So we've seen people believe that Jesus has authority, but how far does that authority go? What exactly does Jesus do with his authority? And so today, I think we're going to see in our text the extent of Jesus's authority. That Mark's not just saying he's this random miracle worker or this really charismatic, knowledgeable teacher of the law. Mark wants us to know that Jesus actually has the authority to forgive sins. That the extent of Jesus's authority is that he can forgive sins. And so then our big idea for this morning, what we're going to see from this text, is that because Jesus has the authority to forgive sins all need to come to him in faith. Okay, because he has the authority to forgive sin, each and every one of us need to come to him in faith. And I emphasize that idea of each and every one of us, all of us, every single one has to come to him in faith. Because what we're gonna see through this story is really two main characters or or groups of characters. We're gonna see a man who's a paralytic, And then we're going to see a group of people that that are the scribes, the the religious people of the day. And what we're going to see as this story unfolds is that Jesus interacts with the, the, I'm going to call it the the obviously sick, the, the paralytic man, the one who just, you look at him and you know this man is sick. But then he's also going to interact with what I'm going to call the, the secretively sick. The ones that look good on the outside, but Jesus is going to say that they have the same sickness. Because the dirty little secret that that we're all faced with, we're going to have to come to today, is that each and every one of us has the same core problem. At the depths of our soul, we have the same issue. And what Mark wants us to see is that that issue that needs to be dealt with can be dealt with through the authority of Jesus. So that's what we're going to see today, that because Jesus has authority we all have to come to him in faith. And so uh, my two points are the obviously sick and then the secretively sick. So if you got a Bible, Mark chapter two, let's look first at the obviously sick. 
Look with me, Mark chapter two, starting in verse one. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that no, there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let the bed down on which the paralytic lay. So in chapter one, as we lead up to this section, Jesus was actually in Capernaum before. And when he was there, he was teaching, he was casting out demons, and his popularity began to grow so much that he actually got driven out, and he had to go teach and do ministry uh, in what's called desolate places, it says in Mark 1. But now, in Mark 2, we see him come back into the city, back into Capernaum, and obviously these people remember him because he begins teaching And it says the room is full, like really full. Like if you were here uh, for our launch Sunday, I don't know if you guys remember this, but in between the two services that we had, if you were over in this little room that should like comfortably fit maybe 75 people, in between services, we had like 250 packed in there, primarily because that's where the breakfast burritos were. And so everyone's like cramming in, they're trying to get to these burritos. And I remember at one point I'm walking through and you're like squeezing by, trying not to awkwardly touch anybody as you go by. And it just, it was uncomfortable. There's too many people in that space. And that's similarly what we see here. Imagine that there's this house and it is just packed. And at the center of attention is Jesus teaching. Well, these four guys walk up with the man or their friend, this paralytic. And they walk up and they get to the door. And as it says, there's no room at the door. You cannot get in this room. And so they, because they desperately believed that Jesus had the authority to heal this man, they say, okay, plan A, shut, closed door. For most people, most sane people, I think you, you just kind of say, okay, well, we'll try again tomorrow, right? But that's not them. They're, they're desperate. And so they say, okay, here's what we're going to do. Usually in most of these houses, you have a front door, but you also probably have stairs to go up, up on the roof. And it's not like a, a roof that we maybe have today, but it's more of like a patio. So they would have, uh, they would have an area. Usually you sit up there, you eat meals and stuff up there. You can host up there. So they go around, they climb up onto the roof and they decide that it's a good idea to basically just rip this man's house apart. Okay, so they go in and they begin to remove the roof. Now, Mark, he kind of breezes past this, but don't be fooled. Listen to this. It says, they removed the roof, they made an opening, and they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. I mean, Mark treats this like this is just an everyday occurrence, that people just do this. But don't be fooled. This isn't a common practice. Like this is another person's house and they come and they say, okay, not only are they vandalizing his house, not only are they breaking and entering, but just imagine this isn't probably a clean process. So you've got this house, but, but it was probably made out of dirt and mud and clay, maybe some branches or some sort of twigs that are holding this thing together. And so just imagine this room is full of people. Jesus is teaching, the most famous guy in the city. He's sitting here teaching. 
And all of a sudden, people start hearing this like scratching above them. And you start to get some dirt that begins falling down. I mean, this, this isn't clean. So these people are sitting here and dirt is beginning to fall on them. And all of a sudden, the sun like bursts in as they just rip the roof apart. And half of it's probably falling down into this crowd of people. This is not fast and this is not clean. They are making a huge scene. And after all of that, they lower a guy on a mat right into the center of everything. I mean, this is crazy, okay? This is insane what just happened here. And before we move on to, to see how Jesus interacts with this whole crazy situation, I do think we need to note the determination of these friends. I mean, listen to that story, and I think that these friends are incredibly marked by love and faith. I mean, these guys loved their friend so much and they had so much faith that if they just got him to Jesus, that Jesus had the authority to heal, that he had the power to heal this man. There was nothing that was going to stop them. Their faith in Jesus and their love for their friend would drive them to stop at nothing to have Jesus work in this man's life. And so Providence, I think it, And we need to ask ourselves, do we have the love for people and the faith in Jesus to stop at nothing to get Jesus to work in their life? I mean, you see, the the reality is what we truly believe will help people, we will share with the ones we love. We do this all the time. Maybe we don't even recognize it, but what we believe will help people, we will share with the ones we love. I, I do this personally uh, with books. So I'm a reader. I love reading. And, and as I get to a book, if, I, if something just changes me, if it changes how I think, if it just blows my mind or it, it alters me, I want to tell people about that. Right? Like if I believe this is actually going to help you, this could help you change, this could help you get better in some way, I'm either going to tell you what I just read or I'm going to say, you got to read this book, Right? Or maybe some of you, uh, it's with music and you hear a new group or, or a new song and you just say, this is amazing and I gotta get somebody to listen to this. I mean, you, you literally like put it in their ear and just say, I, I'm going to force you to listen to this because it's that good. You have to do this. Or we do this with uh, health, right? If we uh, are trying to get healthy and we find a new workout plan or a new diet or something that really works and we believe in it, we'll tell people. We'll try to get others to help. We'll say, hey, it's okay. Throw the $1,000 at CrossFit each month. It's gonna be worth it for you, I promise, okay? Or, you know, I found this new diet. It's just like roots and leaves, but it works. And I promise you're gonna get healthy. And we, we do that. I mean, we find anything. And we say, you gotta try this. It's going to help. What we believe will help people, we will share with the ones we love. And these four guys believed in the authority of Jesus. They believed in Jesus and they brought this man to him and would stop at nothing. So if we do this with books and music and health and all this stuff, the question I think for us is, do we do this with Jesus? I mean, honestly, do do we have such a faith in Jesus and a love for others that we will stop at nothing to have Jesus work in their lives? That we will do whatever it takes to share Jesus, to get people close to Jesus so that they could maybe find hope in him. But let's, 
Let's keep moving on. Let's look at how Jesus responds to the scene. These four friends, this great faith, this great love for this man, they get him in front of Jesus, and here's how Jesus responds. Verse five. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, as I read this the first time, this seemed a little odd to me, okay? I mean, if you're reading this, I'm thinking, okay, the four friends, they finally got in the house. They, they ripped a man's house apart. They stole the center of attention. They get this man at the feet of Jesus. He's got to be thinking, this is amazing. Like, this is the day I get to walk. I can actually get up out of here. I get to walk. There's no more pain, no more suffering. And Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. Now, Jesus isn't stupid here, okay? I mean, he, he knows what the man's asking for. He gets why they're doing this. He knows that he wants healing. He knows that he wants to walk. He knows that he wants to be free of his pain and suffering. But what Jesus does is so amazing. He, he knows that the healing, the physical healing is important, but he wants to communicate to this man that he has an even greater need than his physical suffering. I think uh, Tim Keller commenting on this verse says it best. He says, in fact, Jesus knows something this man doesn't know, that he has a much bigger problem than his physical condition. Keller continues saying, it's as if Jesus is saying to this man, I understand your problems. I've seen your suffering and I'm going to get to that. But please realize that the main problem in a person's life is never his suffering, it's his sin. When I heal your body, if that's all I were to do, you'll feel as if you'll never be unhappy again. But wait two months, wait four months, the euphoria will not last. And I think Keller just nails this on the head. What Jesus is revealing here is that the main problem is never physical suffering. The main problem is always sin. You know, our our pain, our hurts, our ailments, the physical suffering that we're under is a big deal. And Jesus cares about that, but he wants us to know that there's a greater issue that we're facing. There's a greater problem that we have in sin. And so for us, I wonder if there's many in this room that, like this paralytic man, are desperate. Maybe some with physical suffering and you're just, you're desperate. But as we begin to look at the the greater problem of sin in our hearts, I wonder if some of you are here this morning just desperate to get rid of the baggage. Just desperate to rid yourself of the sin that has just been clinging to you. Desperate to get rid of the the shame that just won't seem to leave. Desperate to get rid of the guilt that internally just condemns you. I mean, maybe you're here this morning and and honestly, you're, you're not fooling anybody. Like you're not coming in here thinking that you're the church kid, that you've got the verses memorized, that you look the right way, that you talk the right way. Maybe you're wondering even if God would let you into a church service again after some of the things you've done. Maybe like this guy, you can relate to feeling shame. I mean, just think about the story. Let's not romanticize it. I mean, this man has spent at least a while, if not most of his life, not being able to walk, feeling embarrassed, feeling shame. 
probably begging for any sort of income that helps him survive. And now he's being lowered into this room with pompous religious leaders and the most famous man in the city. And as he sits in the dust and the dirt and the mud, he just sits there in desperation that Jesus might actually heal him. I wonder if that's you this morning. If you feel like you are here this morning so desperate that you realize you might get mocked, you might get scorned, but this kind of seems like your last chance. And if that's you, I think Jesus wants you to know that he sees you, that he recognizes you, and that he loves you. And most importantly, I think Jesus wants you to know this morning that Jesus has the authority to forgive you of your sins and make you new. That which plagues you, that which seems to cover you, that which seems to be impossible to get rid of, Jesus has the authority to get rid of it. Jesus can forgive you. Jesus will forgive you. And what do we have to do to get this forgiveness of Jesus? We come to him in faith. We believe in him and we trust that he can do this. And like the paralytic man, if we fall at the feet of Jesus, you can experience just the grace and forgiveness just wash over you and in that moment be declared forgiven. Everything, everything that's been done to you, everything that you've done to others, forgiven. So I would ask if that's you this morning, would you, would you believe I mean, would you place your faith in Jesus that he can actually rid you of what's been plaguing you and make you new and whole? Now, there is another group of people that we're going to look at quickly, but but before I do, I just want to round this guy's story out because it comes back at the end of our story and Jesus does focus on his physical pain. He addresses him. He says, you got a greater issue than your physical pain. But he does come back. Look at Mark 2, verse 9. Jesus says, Now which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and he went out before them all. So Jesus does end up healing this man in this story. He does, he focuses on the greater need and then he gets to his physical need. But notice why he does it in verse 10. He says, so that these people in this house would know that he has the authority to forgive sin, let me heal this man. Because I can heal his innermost greatest need, let me heal his physical need. And sometimes I think uh, today we can just get this idea of divine healing so messed up. We we can just get this so confused because Jesus is clear here that he notices and he cares deeply about our pains, that he cares about the physical ailments that plague us. But he's saying here that he's going to do that in order that we may know that he has even greater authority than that. And so here at Providence, we believe God can heal. We believe that God sometimes will physically heal and we believe that sometimes he doesn't. 
You see, Jesus isn't this magic formula or this silver bullet to just get rid of any physical pain that you have. Jesus is the one that forgives and heals you of your greatest need. And if he sees fit, he just may heal you of your physical need. But if he doesn't, he is still God and he is still good. And if you've placed your faith in him, Jesus promises that one day that physical ailment, that physical illness will be healed. For some, that may happen here on earth. It's a possibility that Jesus will actually heal the physical here, but it is most certain that he will heal it one day. So it may happen here or it will happen for all of eternity. That if you have placed your faith in Christ, if he has taken care of your greatest uh, emotional and core need, he will one day get to your physical need. It may be here or it may be for all of eternity. Jesus has the authority to heal, but in even greater ways, he wants you to be forgiven and healed of your sins. So that's the, the obviously sick, the, the sinners that just wear it on their clothes, that they are coming to Jesus in desperation. But that's not the only people in our story that I think he, he's addressing as sick. Let's finish the story by looking at what I'm calling the, the secretively sick. So look with me in verses 6 through 9. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? And then he gets to where he heals the paralytic. So in this room, we know the, the people listening, there's the, the four men that drop down with the paralytic, but there's also what's called the scribes. Now these are just simply, the, they're more religious leaders in Jesus' day. And they get quite upset at what's happening in front of them. They're sitting in this room listening to Jesus and they see him claim something that only one person can do. And that's God alone. When he says, when he claims to forgive this man of his sins, these good Jewish people that know their Old Testament know that only God can forgive sins. I mean, it's clear throughout scripture that no religious leader, no prophet, no priest, not even, they didn't even think the Messiah was going to be able to forgive sins. Only God could forgive sins. Now, this is the first of many times throughout the Gospel of Mark that we're going to see the religious leaders and Jesus kind of butt heads. We're going to see the religious leaders get more and more upset as time goes on because here's the reality for them. Jesus is going to begin shaking things up a little too much for them. He's going to begin to get a little too radical for them. And the primary reason throughout the Gospels that we see that they don't like him is because he's not just saying the obvious sinners need grace and forgiveness. He's going to look at them and say, you too need grace and forgiveness. It's not just the ones who are overtly living in sin. He's going to say, all people need grace and forgiveness. And for these religious leaders, I mean, it was their, it was their ethnicity, it was their pedigree, it was what they've done that made them right with God. That's what they boasted in. They, they say things like, I mean, for heaven's sake, we're, we're children of Abraham, right? We're ethnically Jewish. We're of the right people. We're the leaders in the temple. We're the scribes of the law. We're the ones, we're the good ones 
who lead the bad ones. We're not the ones who need this radical grace. It's like if I were to ask, if you were a musician, and I was to ask you, well, you know, why are you a musician? You'd probably say, well, you know, maybe my, my parents, they're both really musical. They, they gave that, they kind of instilled that in me at a young age. When I was really young, I bought my first instrument. I had this lesson and this lesson and this teacher. I joined this band. I, I did this. And, and you're going to give me this list of things that you've done to get you where you are today. Well, similarly, these scribes were saying, look, we're good with God because of where we've come from and what we've done in our religion. And this is my fear. If I were to ask this entire room why you are a Christian, I fear that some of us would give a similar answer like the scribes. Why am I a Christian? Well, I was baptized when I was young. I grew up going to Sunday school. I try to do one good thing every day. I mean, I'm in church most Sundays. Or maybe some of us would say things like, well, you know, I'm, I'm American. I eat red meat. I own a gun. Like, I'm for liberty. I'm a Christian, right? Or, or we're in Blackstone, so maybe it's a little on the other side like, well, you know, I love people. I'm taller. Like, I don't judge anybody. It's all about just love and good vibes. And I'm a, I'm a Christian, I think this is what the scribes are saying. They're, look, look where I'm from. Look what the things that I have done. Of course, God and I are good. And I got to tell you, this as I'm reading this, this is exactly my story. This is my story to a T. For almost my entire life, I would have claimed to be a Christian. But when I was younger, if you were to ask why, I would have said things like, well, I believe in God. I was baptized in the Catholic Church. I was confirmed in the Lutheran Church. It's a little weird, but I went to a Christian school, right? I, you know, I did all of this stuff. My parents are Christians. I even had a Bible on my nightstand growing up. Like, I'm, I'm a Christian. Well, then I got to college, and I started hanging out with a college ministry at UNO, and I started to hear them talk about Jesus a lot. And so, so I kind of altered my answer a little bit, and then you'd say, well, why are you a Christian? Well, I believe in Jesus, Now, that sounds really good, okay? That's much better than what I said before, but here's the problem. Did I believe Jesus was a real person? Yeah, sure. Did I even believe that Jesus probably died on a cross 2,000 years ago? Yeah, sure. Did I believe that it was my sins that caused him to go to the cross? I mean, did I believe that the only way I could be made right with God was the grace of the cross? Did I believe that the only way I could be forgiven is through Jesus' death for me? No. No, I could believe a lot of right things about Jesus, about God, all this stuff. I could do things and come from a good family, and that does not make me a Christian. And so I've got to ask, is is that possibly you this morning? Maybe you don't resonate with the people that, that are just overtly sinful, But maybe this sounds a little too familiar. Maybe this idea of saying, well, I'm a Christian because of where I came from and what I've done sounds a little too familiar. Is your story of why you're a Christian have more to do about your facade and the good deeds that you've done rather than that you're a sick soul that has come to Jesus? You know, these scribes throughout the gospel, they needed Jesus to tell them that even though they looked good externally, they still were sick and needed saving. 
And my guess is that there's some people in the room this morning that just like the scribes need this passage to say, even though you look good to the world, you're actually sick. Because the truth is there is no Christian apart from Christ. It just, it's not possible. And we don't just see this in Jesus. All the New Testament writers are pointing back to this and saying, look, this is the only way. We see this in Ephesians 2. It says it's only by grace through faith in Christ That's it. That's the only way you're saved. Or others will say in Romans 10, if you believe and you confess in Jesus, you will be saved. That's it. Just believe that Jesus died and rose again from the dead. In Titus 3, it says it's it's only mercy. It's only grace that washes you clean. It's nothing that you have done. So if you're in the place like I was, where I was secretively sick, I looked good from the outside and I had sins plaguing me on the inside. Would you consider stop hiding those sins behind fake smiles, good facades and nice deeds and would you come to Jesus this morning? Would you trust that that like all other people we need to come to him in faith? Would you lay down the guilt and the shame that plagues you, the the good deeds and the bad deeds, the good religion and the bad religion, and would we all as a people come to Jesus in faith? Because he's the only one who has the authority to forgive sins. We all need to come to him alike. To end, let me give you a a couple stanzas from an old hymn that I love. It's from the 1750s, I think, and, and this just points to this so beautifully says this, Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come, ye weary and heavy laden, all lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry or if you wait till you're better, you will never come at all. And then the refrain is this like call to action, this response. It says, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. Providence, would we do this this morning? Would we not tarry? Would we not wait and try to clean up our act to get to Jesus? Would we lay down the facades and would we lay down the shame and the guilt and would we come to him in faith? Now we're going to do this this morning uh, like this refrain says and I'm going to call you here in a minute as I pray uh, if that's you this morning to actually arise to, to get out of your seat uh, and we have a team of people in the back they would love to hear your story and pray with you. If that might be you this morning, that, that you hear this and you think, I need to be forgiven. I need the authority of Jesus to forgive sins, to make me new. Would you make that decision this morning? Would this morning be the time where you choose in faith to follow Jesus? And if that would be you, as I pray, would you get up and go to the back and and talk to someone? Just tell them your story, tell them where you're at, and they would love to talk to you and pray with you. And for the rest of us, uh, for anyone here who has placed their faith in Jesus already, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to take communion. And communion is this sign uh, of what we are preaching about. That, that in communion, as you take the, the cracker and you dip it in the juice, it's symbolic 
of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus that has the power to forgive you of your sins. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We're going to sing because Jesus is worthy, because he has died to forgive us of our sins. And what I want you to do is if you this morning want to make that decision, would you head to the back and pray with somebody? Or if you're already a Christian, how we're going to do this is if you, whenever you're ready, would come down the middle aisle. We'll have communion servers up front. Uh, All the crackers and everything's gluten-free, so you don't have to worry about that. But just come down, and, and when you're ready, take the cracker, dip it in the juice, and in that you are saying, all my faith is in what this represents, that Jesus died and rose again for my sins. So communion servers can come forward. Let me pray, and we'll sing. Father God, we thank you that you sent your son. And we thank you that you have come for all people, those who are struggling under the weight of sin right now, those who are suffering, and for those who who look good from the outside, who are externally uh, full of good deeds and good things, God, would we all alike come to you in faith? God, I pray that you would continue to help open our eyes to the magnificent grace that you have given to each and every one of us. Would that mark us as a church? And now we sing to you. We come to you as sinners solely by your grace. Amen.